Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, it was bound to happen in our looking at the book of Acts, and we saw the birth of the church, the birth of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in and brings it to life and empowers it, uh, doing miraculous things. And so many, many people, remember the end of that first day, over 3,000 people have come to Christ. Uh, what an amazing thing. And then we see the life of this, of this new baby, what's going on and how it's, the church is very much in motion. It's doing things, it's going places, and things are going really, really well. So it was bound to happen, wasn't it? That the forces that got Jesus crucified in the first place were now unhappy because they thought they had taken care of the problem and now here the problem is still there and it's growing. And so we have a, a group of people, the, um, it says the Sadducees, the Sadducees were very much a politically minded religious group. They were religious in the sense that they were connected to the Jewish people and the law, but they didn't believe in a spirit world as such. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed that maybe you lived on through your ancestors somehow. Anyway, so they, they would argue often with the other group, the Pharisees, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. They would argue with them about whether or not there was a resurrection and life after death and all that kind of stuff. But so the Sadducees are really unhappy because what the, these disciples are now preaching is that this Jesus who was crucified is what? Risen, he's resurrected. That doesn't fit into their theology and their ability to kind of maintain some control. And then the priests were largely Sadducees and so they're involved with this. And then the captain of the guard of the temple, he's involved and I don't know what his persuasion would have been. But anyway, opposition comes. So let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Acts chapter four. In the Bible that's in the chairs there, it starts on page 1256. And what has led up to this? In chapter three, uh, John and Peter are going up to the temple to pray. And as they're going, there's a, a man there who has been lame. Um, is it safe from birth? I don't even remember, but he's a lame man there and he can't walk and everybody sees him every time they go in and out of the temple because he put, puts himself there and he's begging. And, and it says that Peter, as they walked by, Peter saw him and, and looked at him and, and made eye contact with him and he stopped. And then it says the man looked up thinking Peter was gonna give him something. And Peter disappoints the man because he says, silver and gold have I none. I don't have any money. He says, but what I do have, I'm going to give you. And then we talked last week a little about the signs of an apostle, the power that God had given the apostles. He says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he took him by hand and man stands up and he is completely healed. And he's so excited, he says he's walking and leaping and praising God, he's all excited about it. And everybody's seeing it and they're saying, wow, this is amazing. Because Peter said what? In the name of Jesus. Be healed. And he was. And so the uh, crowd obviously draws a big crowd. Peter preaches again. And then we see this happening in chapter 4, right at the beginning of chapter 4. 
says, now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So we have 3,000 converts on the first day. Now we're up to maybe a total of 5,000. But notice how it says it. It says the what? The number of the? In your Bible there. The number of the men came to be about 5,000. So they're just counting the men. So how many women were there? We don't know, but a bunch probably, right? Might there have even been some kids, young people? We don't know. So 5,000 men probably equates to at least 10,000 people. The city of Jerusalem, you can go look up and see what they think the population was. They say they think the population was anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000. And so 10,000 people, right? That'd be like in the city of Worcester if, if, if we had 16,000 people in our church. That'd be, that's the comparison to the size of what was going on. So obviously the, the Sadducees and those who were opposed to Jesus are really unhappy because this is like getting way out of control, okay? So they go and have them arrested and put them in jail for the night. Verse five, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. So this would have been the Jewish ruling council. That's what it means when it talks about the rulers, elders, and scribes. And then the Sadducees, and this is their family, the high priest and all his relatives. They're trying to get as many of their folks in that meeting as possible. So they call this meeting. They were gathered together at Jerusalem. Verse 7. And when they had set them, when they set Peter and John... In the midst, they ask, by what power or by what name have you done this? I, think, I, I don't know what they were thinking. Obviously, when people are in opposition to God and what's going on, they obviously aren't thinking straight. But they really aren't thinking straight here. What name have you done this in? They ask one of the apostles, a preacher of Jesus, and they ask him, what name did you do this in? Oh, well, let me tell you, right? And that's what Peter says. Then verse eight, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked about that last week, how important it is that we be filled with the Holy Spirit as we serve the Lord. And every Christian can be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's really just about submitting yourself more and more to him, opening yourself up to his working in your life. He will fill you. And when he fills you, it changes how you, it'll affect how you think, it'll affect how you respond, it'll affect what you say, and even affect to some extent how you feel. Okay, so anyway, so Peter here is filled with the Holy Spirit and, and he said to them, verse eight, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? So I mean, what have we done wrong? We haven't done anything wrong. All we've done is help this man who had this problem. But you wanna know who, how we did it? Verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So we might think that's where they'd stop, right? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But what did they say next? Uh, By the way, he's the one you guys crucified. I'm paraphrasing what they're right. So he's making clear that this is the one that you guys crucified. Whom God raised from the dead. That's right in the face of those who were upset because they were preaching the resurrection. 
whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. So they must have brought this man in as well. And they can see he's uh, completely healed. And he had been there for so long, so many times people go by, they knew before that he wasn't healed. And now he is healed. And how do you explain it? And they're saying, well, we explain it. It's in the power of the name of Jesus that we did it. And then he goes back to the Old Testament and quotes a passage which has reference to the coming Messiah. Uh, a ver- a scripture probably written eight, nine hundred years before this time. And he says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, God is doing something. God is building something. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. That's where everything else builds out from. He says, you guys rejected it, but God has raised him from the dead and has made him the chief cornerstone. He's made him that upon which everything else is, is being built. And then he says this, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we're talking about the church, what it's supposed to be like, and we're looking at the book of Acts and talking about this church in motion and what it, it, it was doing, this message, what it stood for. And well, let me read that again. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the first thing we want to see here today in this passage, and we're going to read uh, much more here, but that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Now, there are a lot of churches today that don't say that. Or they say it very quietly. But how much clearer could Peter have been there is what? No other way. And we talked a few weeks ago about our culture doesn't like that, right? Our culture doesn't like that. But let's just say this right up front. If there were other ways, then Jesus didn't need to come. Right? Because there are other ways. We don't need. No, the only way was for him to come and to, to uh, live that sinless life and die on the cross as a sinless man. But then God taking all the penalty, guilt for my sins and yours and the sins of the whole world and, and Somehow or other place it in on Jesus so he dies paying the penalty. And then when we receive Christ, we get his righteousness. His righteousness. Now, does God know about my sins? All of them? You sure? Yes, all of them, doesn't he? The ones I committed before I came to Christ and the ones I've committed since I've come to Christ, which hopefully those are fewer and fewer, right? <laughs> Trying to make progress there. Um, but he knows about all of them. He hasn't forgotten them in that sense. He knows them. But when he looks at my, he looks up my record, so to speak, of whether I'm righteous or not, what does he see? He sees Jesus' righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Wow. And that's how he interacts with me. Okay, and yeah, we're dealing with all these realities and where I'm coming from and I'm being transformed and all that, which is so important. But... I get his righteousness, that's you. But, and so this is the only way to be saved. And, and this means that, that you cannot possibly do enough good works to save yourself. Because when we sinned against God that very first time, we, in a sense, we prove that we're dead spiritually. We're dead to God. And yes, we've sinned, but what we need is his life. 
And the only way that comes is by receiving Christ as Savior. There are no good works. You know, you can't do religious works to make your way to heaven. You can't get baptized to make your way to heaven. You can't give money to get to heaven. You can't be involved in ministries and feeding the poor to get to heaven. Are all those good things to do? Yes. Absolutely, but they won't get you to heaven. They just won't. It's impossible. Scripture is quite clear on that. It's only through Jesus. Um, and this word, I mean, we think of words, don't pay too much attention, but this word must that we see in our English language is translated from a Greekly word. Greek, a Greekly word? Greekly. A Greekly word. I like that. That's pretty cool. A Greekly word. They're from a Greek word, and it just means absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. This is the only possible way. And we've seen, didn't Jesus affirm this himself in John chapter 14 and verse 6 when it says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What? No one comes to the Father except through me. Because why? Because there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. The gospel is quite clear. And we, we get saved when we understand that this, we are sinners before God and we're in trouble, right? If we die in that condition, we're headed to hell. But we come to know and understand that Jesus really did rise from the dead. He died for our sins, rose from the dead. And, and the invitation to us is that by faith, we receive Christ as Savior. And the moment that we do that, the very moment we, in sincerity, you know, with a, a repentant heart of our sin, right? We're turning away from our own ways and our own stuff and turning to God and say, oh God, I need a Savior. I'm, I'm trusting Jesus as Savior. And it's not the specific words, it's what's going on, the reality. I trust Jesus as Savior. I receive Christ as Savior. Whatever it is, at that very moment, every sin is forgiven. Okay? So let's, let's do a timeline here today. Here's the timeline of this is when Jesus died and rose again, okay? Well, I wasn't alive then. I really, I'm not quite that old, okay? I wasn't alive then. My time, this timeline continues through history, and then here I am over here somewhere, okay? I, I'm born here, maybe I'm living here, and I'm going to die here, or maybe here, or I don't know, but right? At some point, my life's going to come to an end. All right. And does God know all of this? And does he know all the sins I've already committed? I'm, I'm living here. Does he know all these sins? Does he know about the ones I still haven't committed? Yes. Man, I don't want to commit those. But he knows about all of them, right? And so when Jesus died for my sins, how many of my sins were in the future? That's right. And so when all my sins are forgiven, it includes the sins I've already committed as well as the sins that I'm still committed. And some people say, oh, good, you can go do whatever you want. When you come to Christ and he changes, he moves in, your want to gets changed. Yeah, and you have to learn things and do better. But the idea is, I don't want to commit those sins. I don't. That doesn't mean I don't believe a lie and sometimes go ahead and do it. But I don't want to. It's changed my want to. But the idea is, Jesus died for all those sins. And the only way to get that is through Jesus. Now, this makes Christianity sound exclusive, doesn't it? It is exclusive with respect to how you get saved. Now, God will work in our lives in many ways to bring us to Jesus, right? There's so many ways we come to, the, to that point, but we've got to come to that point. And so it is exclusive, only Jesus, only way. But when it comes to who can be saved, it is all-inclusive. It is all-inclusive. Remember the verse, right? We know it. Say it with me. For God so loved what? The world. That he gave his only begotten son that 
whoever, right, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it is open to everyone. And boy, that's where the responsibility comes on us, right? Because how are they going to know? How are they going to know? Somebody has to tell them or invite them to a place where they can, they can hear it, right? It has to happen. Um, all right, and so a church that is in motion is so important that we as a church keep this, it's not up there right now, but this truth always at the forefront, only by Jesus. Everybody can be saved, but only by Jesus. We must keep that up front. If we ever kind of start to de-emphasize that and leave that out here and there, we will no longer be the kind of church that God tells us in the scripture we ought to be. And like I said, there's lots of churches out there today that don't, because you know, it's kind of offensive, isn't it? You come into our church for your first time and, and, and you have certain beliefs and things that you think, and then we stand up and say, oh no, no, you're lost and going to hell because you haven't received Jesus as Savior. That feels offensive, doesn't it, to us naturally? And so some churches have decided to, well, let's, let's kind of wait. We may, we'll, we'll get them somewhere else. And we'll, I mean, and we just can't do that, okay? We can't do that. And that's why you'll hear me almost every, I, I don't spend this much time on it every week, but almost every week I'm going to talk about this, okay? All right, so let's continue. So, man, Peter stands up and he says, hey, this is the way it is. You guys crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And, and you know, he's what God is going to build everything on. You guys rejected him. And, and I want you to know, no other way to be saved. No other way to be saved. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. So let's just stop there. Educated and untrained men. He doesn't mean that they couldn't read. He's not talking about that. You know, there's a lot of, of um, uh, scholars out there today who want to tell you that, you know, well, back in those days, you know, maybe one or two percent of the people were literate. And I think that's probably true in lots of places in the world, but it was not the true, true in Israel. Because parents trained their children to read so they could read what? The scriptures, the word of God. They trained them. There was a much, much higher literacy rate. And, and so we're not talking about, oh, these guys didn't know how to read. When he's talking about uneducated, untrained, he's talking about those are words that describe an unskilled person. In usage, it means an amateur, an unprofessional, or a layman. Okay, so they had no specific training for this kind of thing that they were doing, this preaching about the things that the Scripture says. And this was, this was a problem for these leaders. Now, you know, I, I should put, I have a little caveat here I need to put in. When we refer to the religious leaders of this day, there were religious leaders there who didn't agree with the conclusions of the whole religious leadership. We know that. We know uh, one was Nicodemus, right? Another one, Joseph of Arimathea. Okay? So we know there were some there. And there were probably some there who were genuinely convinced that they were right and that Jesus was wrong. They were wrong, but they might have been sincere, sincerely wrong. But then there were a bunch of them who were just protecting their position and their power. Because this was upheaval, and it put their positions of power at risk, and they made the Romans get involved, the whole thing. And so uh, they were very self-serving, as we'll see before we're done. But they were used to people when it came time, and, and you can read it, like go read John chapter 9, how people respond there. They're afraid of the religious leaders. People were afraid of them because of what they can do and their power over them. So they were used to people not arguing with them about spiritual things. 
not arguing with them about the scriptures or the law. And in fact, if they looked at you and said, what? They were used to people kind of cowering. Oh, you know, nothing. And what does Peter do? This unskilled, untrained layman stands up and says, well, yeah, let me tell you. I'll tell you how this man was healed. He was healed in the name of Jesus, by the way, the one you guys crucified, (laughs) right? And you can't be saved through any other. I mean, he's bold. He's standing up there. And so they see this bold. They can't figure out how can they be this way, but then they realize how they can be this way. So let's look at the verse, verse 13 again. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's what made the difference. And let me just say, in your own life, if you are spending time with Jesus, real time with him, and if you're new to us, you say, what, how in the world can I do that? He's dead. But no, it's a spiritual reality. We can spend time with him. We can spend time in his word, talking with him. We can pray with him. We can meditate with awareness of him. All of those kinds of things. But it will change you. It will change you. Change you in really, really good ways. And what we see, one of the ways it changed here was that it, they spoke with boldness, right? And authority. And they noted it was Jesus. Why do they say, wait a minute, they've been with Jesus? Because your scripture says when Jesus, go ahead. Go ahead and go to that next one. There. When Jesus had finished, he was teaching. The people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them what? As one having authority and not as the scribes. And they're realizing this guy, Peter, is coming across the same way Jesus did. He's speaking with authority. He's bold. And when we spend time with Jesus and focus in on that, like I said, we, we sit down with the word or, and, and, or we're listening to it and we're thinking about it and we, maybe we have a conversation with God. God, I don't understand that part. What does that mean? Oh boy, Lord, I think that means this, does it? And we spend time with him every day and off and on throughout the day, it's not just gonna make you bold, it'll also make you loving, kind and gentle, strong when you need to be strong, insightful when you need to be, right? I mean, it's all these things. It makes us like Jesus. So here's, here's the second idea. If you have a vibrant relationship with the Lord, it will be visible to others. Now, is it good that people see us differently? as Christians. And by the way, differently as Christians, there are some people out there, sadly, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who think that difference needs to be an external difference. In other words, how you look, you know. I can't pull them up high enough, but. And act a certain way, dress a certain way, hair a certain way, talk a certain way, don't do this, don't do that. All these rules that they've made, they're supposed to be Christian, and they aren't in and of themselves. And so don't worry about trying to make this result. Worry about spending time with the Lord, right? Focus on that. And so that's the sub point here. So diligently pursue a growing relationship with the Lord. And the outcome will take care of itself, right? Because it'll change you. And that change will be a good thing. Definitely. All right, so let's read on. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now, my question is, why would they want to? This man is healed in the name of Jesus. Why isn't that a good thing? 
Well, we've already talked about why they didn't think it was a good thing. Verse 15, but when they had commanded him to go outside of the council, so they, they moved him out of there so they could talk, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. Then why don't you just stop there? (laughs) But so that it spreads no further among the people, so no more people get healed in the name of Jesus. That it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. That from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they were used to being able to threaten people and them just to run away. Verse 18, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Well, this is still Peter filled with the Holy Spirit to become like Jesus because he's hung out with Jesus. And he goes, says, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. He's saying, you guys got to make your own decision about this. But here's what we're talking about. Either we do what God says or we do what you say. And he's, that's pretty clear, right? We either do what God says, and he said, then he says this, verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And Jesus told them, you will be witnesses to me. So we, we gotta speak because this is what God has told us to do. Now, what... Is this a risky, yeah, well, I'm just gonna ask that way. Is this a risky thing for Peter to do? Yes. Peter and John both? It is risky from an earthly human standpoint because yes, these people had power and yes, eventually they could, might even be able to get you killed. Okay, that's the way things work. Uh, and so Peter is standing face to face with this thing that could have been a really, really big problem. Anyway, verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Um, So if you want to know when you're getting old, it must be over 40. No, but Peter is here looking at this circumstance and he's, he's, really, he's being threatened. It says they severely threatened them. Who knows what they threatened them with, right? And, but Peter says, hmm, here's the choice. If I, am I God or you guys? And guess what? I'm gonna go with God. This is a really powerful lesson for us because here's the thing. No matter how bleak the circumstances may seem to you, always do what God says. You know, and I think where we find and experience this most is like in relationships. We find, you know, the relationships are hard and the confrontation problems and we want to avoid a conflict or whatever. All those things that we deal with and sometimes we're, but if I do that, if I, if I do what God says here, it's going to be a big problem. I might lose my job. I remember facing that. When I worked at General Mills that first year, Glenn and I were married and I had tried to make all the shifts and trades so I could be there on Sundays because I was the music director and t- teaching a college and career class, all kinds of stuff. And so Sundays mattered. I had to be there to serve the Lord. And so I finally said, I, I can't do that. I can't work on Sundays. Well, we work seven days a week. And I had to say, I know, and, and I'm sorry, I said, but I just, I won't be there. Well, they're kind of all huffy, you know, the whole thing, but in reality, they never said a word to me about it. They could have fired me. 
But the point is, we got to come to those places. And I'm not holding myself up as this great saint. I'm just talking about these realities. Things happen in our lives. And at those times, choose God. Always do what God says. Because, guess what? It's always foolish to go against God. It's always foolish to go against God. And this is going to work out for the religious leaders. It's going to be clear in their lives at some point. So it's always wise then to, to go with God and follow him. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter how, what the, the, um, you think the fallout might be, go with God. Submit to him. Go his way. Here's the thing. I've said it before. It's maybe a little different context. But I guarantee you that if you go with God, you will never regret it. And I mean never, not just in this life, but in the one to come. If you choose to compromise and not go with God and go the other way on something because it seems safer or easier or more profitable or whatever it is, you will always come to regret that. Always. If not in this life, in the one to come. Okay? All right. So uh, this... Uh, Peter talks about, you know, Peter, the one who's going through this, talks about this idea of suffering. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Because guess what? You're going to suffer either way. You may suffer because you're doing what God says and there's these problems. But if you choose not to do what God says, you're going to suffer in a different way. He says, if you're going to suffer... You might as well suffer for doing what's right. And he says this a little later. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good to a faithful creator. Trust God. You can trust God with this. And, and I just really like what, what Jesus had to say, but as if it matters, I really like what Jesus said, right? <laughs> what he said was good and right. He says this. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And how long is heaven? How long is heaven? We can't even really grasp that one, right? But so how long is my life? I have this timeline here I'm talking about, right? And my life is, and all this is eternity in heaven, except that this never ends. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's just, it only makes sense to do this. And then Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, if the world hates you, you know that hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So you can expect that. All right, so let's continue. By the way, as a church, we need to make sure that we are a church who is always choosing God's way. And we're not perfect in that, right? But as best we can, surrender to God. And as a church, we need to, be doing what God says, the way he says it, the best we know how. Okay. All right, so let's continue here. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions. They went back to the church and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. So we had their prayers, and this, one person praying this or a combination of people, I don't know, but this is how Luke records it for us here. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they started by, who is God? In your great name, right? Like we sang, you are God. 
who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and he quotes from Psalm number two, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So they're seeing very clearly what's going on here, right? This is not a disagreement just between human beings. This is a disagreement with people and God, isn't it? For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. This does not mean that God micromanages and, and makes everything happen. What he's saying is that he sent his son into the world to what? Die for our sins and become our savior. And when those people took their opposition to God, what did they actually accomplish? They accomplished what God intended to accomplish, okay? And so they're recognizing that, man, all this is going on. God, you are sovereign above it all. Verse 29, I just meant, because they recognize that ultimately God is over all and he can bring to pass what he wants to bring to pass and what he said he's going to do, they, 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 here's what they pray about. Now, Lord, look on their threats. They, you know how they threatened us. And grant to your servants, talking about themselves, and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Now, let's stop there. We're going to see a little more about this prayer. But I don't know. I think our natural tendency would be to pray and say, Oh, God, you've seen their threats. Please keep us safe. Please deliver us from that. Don't let these bad things that they're saying they're going to do, just don't let those happen. Please, God, take care of us. That's not what they prayed. They prayed, God, you hear their threats. You know what they're doing? But God, you please help us and enable us to speak boldly, to keep doing what we just did, to speak boldly for the Lord, to share the gospel, to tell the truth about whatever the issue is. Verse 30, by stretching out your hand to heal and the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Lord, do more of this, even though they're upset with it and we know it's gonna get us in trouble. Do more of it because we wanna speak for you. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And I don't know if that means there was an earthquake. I don't know if that means that they just experienced, it doesn't matter. The reality is the place was shaken and they knew that God was there and working. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they did what? Spoke the word of God with boldness. God answered that prayer. So here's something to think about. Like I said, our natural tendency is to pray for our own deliverance from discomfort and pain. Don't focus your prayers on getting to remove your problems, getting God to do that. Focus on how you can honor God in your problems. See, that's what they did, right? They had this problem that was going on because of what God had told them to do. God, we want to glorify you. We want to do what you said. We want to honor you. We want you to work through us. Please enable us to do that. In this situation, they never asked once for deliverance from the problem. And I'm not saying it's wrong to ask deliverance. If my stomach starts hurting so bad, I think I'm going to die, which has happened once or twice in my life. I'm going to say, oh, God, please. I'm not, you know... Uh, so it's not wrong to ask that, but what ought to be the most important to us is this, right? This. God, I want to glorify you in this situation. Because here's a, a promise for you. 
God will always answer these kinds of prayers. When you say, God, I want to glorify you in this situation. I want to do what you want me to do. Help me to know I'm going to, going forward with you. I'm, and in all my ways, I'm acknowledging you. I'm trusting that you're going to direct my paths. You know, God always answers those prayers. God, please stop my stomach from hurting right now. He could answer, but he might not. I have no guarantee he would answer that. But I always got a guarantee he'll answer when I said, God, I want to do what you want me to do. Please enable me to do that. He will always answer those prayers. And think if we're filled with a church full of people like this. And I, I know many of you are that way. That's good. Let's remind ourselves, right? If you're not, then you want to think, gee, I need to kind of connect with the Lord about this. So these things, if we're going to be the kind of church God wants us to be, the individual Christians that God wants us to be, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way to be saved. You've got to get saved. If you aren't saved, you need to do that. If you have questions about it, please ask. We will help you. If you have a vibrant relationship with the Lord, it'll be visible to others, right? So pursue that vibrant relationship with the Lord. No matter how bleak the circumstances, always do what God says. This, if, you, if you can settle that in your life, it'll save you from so much. And we'll honor God. And then don't focus your prayers on getting God to remove your problems. Focus on how you can honor God in your problems. And this is the kind of church we want to be, isn't it? This is what we want people to see and know when they walk through the doors and when you run into them in life. What's different about this person? What's different about you? And if they're around you long enough, they realize, oh, it's that Jesus thing. That's what's different. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter's example, John's example. Lord, we do want to be people like this who are just devoted to you, surrendered to you, getting to know you, uh, seeking to do your will, humble. Um, and then Lord, we want our church to be like that, that we could be a light, a city set on a hill um, that many can see and see you when they see us. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.